together before we look into this passage. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is true. It is not just merely the inspirational words of wise men, but it is the God-breathed word of God that is you speaking to us through this passage. And so we pray that we might have ears to hear it and hearts that are taking these words uh, at face value and then acting upon them in a way that would honor you and glorify you. And so, Lord, uh, use the foolishness of preaching to help us know you and to understand who you are and what you want want from us as we investigate this passage together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have said many times over the years that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. Powerful. The good news is that God has provided a way, a way of salvation through the life and through the work of Jesus Christ that results in changed lives. That's such a key concept to understand. The Bible says that if anyone be in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God does not merely offer reassurances. He doesn't merely offer encouraging promises in the gospel. He imparts new life. New life into people who by nature were spiritually unresponsive and spiritually dead. The gospel of grace is not a system of behavior modification in which we're just trying to offer people help on losing weight, or we want to offer people through the gospel some sort of communication skills that are improved in their marriage. We're not just offering people some understanding as to how to develop better relationships with wider circles of people in your life. No, Christianity centers on changing hearts. Christianity centers on changing minds, changing our nature, changing our status, changing our identity, we've looked at it in previous weeks, changing our destiny, and changing ultimately our relationship with sin. So this is what we're thinking about, this whole idea of change. We started a number of weeks ago how God has changed us and our status and how we relate to Him. We talked the last few weeks about the idea that God has set us apart into a, a new way of living. Well, today we're going to think more clearly about what are the implications. If we have been joined to Christ by faith, and we're united to Christ, united to Him in His death to sin, and then united to Him in His resurrection to newness of life, then what does that mean for you and for me? The Apostle Paul celebrated the power of the gospel to bring about these internal changes, and he talked about those Internal changes were always to be evident by bringing about outward changes in greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. For example, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, we heard a fellow speaker here not too long ago talk about this passage in which Paul insists that those who are at one time characterized by a lifestyle of fornication, that is, sexual relationship with someone to whom you're not married, or idolatry, or adultery, or homosexuality, or stealing, or coveting, or drunkenness, or swindling. All of these people who who at one time were characterized by that, Paul says, 
you as believers underwent this dramatic transformation. He said, such were some of you, but you were changed, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The gospel of inner transformation compels believers to adopt a new manner of life. And last week we noticed that God not only sets us apart to holiness at the time of our conversion, it's a one-time thing in which we are sanctified at that one moment, but then he begins this ongoing process of change that continues on through our life, what we call sanctification, where we gradually lay aside the old self, the old lifestyle, and we adopt a new lifestyle, a new self. Verse 24 of chapter 4 in Ephesians says what? which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this process of putting aside the old self, putting on the new self, is I'd like to divide it into two categories. This Sunday we're going to focus on one of those categories. The next Sunday when I preach we'll be studying on and thinking about the other category. The first one is called mortification, putting to death sin, mortification. It comes from the same word from which we get mortuary. It has to do with dying, putting to death. So let's consider this as we look, first of all, then, at what our text says uh, regarding this change. He contrasts, um, if you will, uh, verse 24. He talks about putting on the new self in the likeness that God has created righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here's my first point. If we're going to be a people who are putting on the new self and putting off the old self, we have to realize that we are engaged in and we continue to do battle against sin. We are engaged in and we continue to do battle against sin. There is no such thing as a peace treaty that any of us as Christians ever reach with sin. Now, several weeks ago, I described my father, who is a captain in the United States Army, And I learned a lot about him once he died, unfortunately. That's sort of the way it is sometimes, reading some of his correspondence that he wrote. He was in the Army uh, right at the time of World War II. And my father's experience in World War II is much different than the average um, enlisted man at that time. Um, He was still in training during the active war, but then right when he was getting ready to leave uh, the West Coast to take a ship over to uh, the Pacific they they signed a peace treaty. There was a full surrender on the part of the Japanese. And so my father, after a month at sea, he lands in the Philippines, and he finds himself assigned to this engineering battalion where they're responsible for all these airstrips. And uh, get a load of this. He was there as a leader that now the war is over, none of those soldiers want to be there. Not a one of them. They're ready to get on a ship and get back home. Even he wants to get back home. Nobody wants to be there, and there's no longer any fighting going on. I actually read in his letters that the people who were doing a lot of the maintenance work were POWs who had been held in that area, and they were going to be released and let go after a while. But anyway, here's my father, and he said one of the things he had to continue to do is to court-martial people who were not following military regulations. There was all sorts of bad attitudes, all sorts of people who just 
didn't want to do what they were supposed to be doing. They were, <clears throat> they were enjoying too much of what was going on off the base. They were disobeying their officer's orders. There was a peace treaty that had been signed, and then people began to live differently, and it was not good from his point of view. Now, what am I trying to say here? Again, believers do not coexist with sin as if there's been some peace treaty put in place. Every Christian is at war with sin. And interestingly enough, the battle against sin is continuously going on for those of us who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Romans 8.12 says it this way, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's mortification, putting to death the deeds of the body. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Galatians 5 speaks of crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. So that is the call that says, we are engaged in battle. It doesn't stop. There's no peace treaty. But secondly, notice that if that's true, then one of the battlefields on which this ongoing battle takes place and where we battle against sin, it is being waged in the battlefield of your mind. Think about it. Our minds, our thinking is extremely important in this whole battle against sin. If you look at Ephesians 4, and I hope you have your Bible open and your screen on and you're looking at that text right in front of you there, because notice in this text how many times Paul alludes to your thought life, your thinking, or your knowledge. Verse 17, he talks about futility of mind for those who are unbelievers. Darkened understanding, verse 18. He talks about those who are ignorant due to the hardness of their hearts, verse 18. And then he says, you did not learn Christ, verse 20. You were taught in Christ or taught the truth in Jesus, verse 21. And then verse 23 is so critically important. Renewed in the spirit of your mind, your thought life. One basic way that a follower of Jesus Christ vigilantly engages in battle against sin is by renewing our minds. And when we stop doing that, or when we become lackadaisical about renewing our minds, that's one of the indicators that we are beginning to what? Sit on the sidelines of the battle against sin. We need to fill our minds with God's truth. And that's why the Scripture reminds us and says it's so profitable, it's so helpful for us, because the Scriptures will help us understand what? What's true about God and doctrine? What's true about instructing us in holy living? It will correct us and it will rebuke us. Notice in Ephesians chapter 6, if you just turn the page in your Bible, you'll notice that Paul concludes his book there in Ephesians on spiritual a spiritual battle 
And he talks about the armor of God we're to put on. And he says what? Verse 17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. I think I've put in your notes a helpful quote by D.L. Moody, in which he talks about the impact of the Bible in our minds and the idea of doing battle against sin. He says, either this book, the Scriptures, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Scriptures. There's a lot of truth to that, my friend. A lot of truth. The weapons that we are to wield against the evil one is the all-sufficient, God-breathed Word of God. Psalm 119, when David, when David is reflecting on the wonders of the Word of God, that whole chapter there, Psalm 119, he affirms the role of the Bible as central in fighting against sin. He says this, verse 9 and verse 11 of Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus did battle against the devil by, by engaging what armament? Well, it wasn't by being clever. It wasn't by being creative. But Jesus was effective in fighting against the Satan's temptations and seductive means by what? Quoting Scripture. Not once, not twice, three times he quotes the Word of God. He had hid the Word of God in his heart. He was able to defeat the evil one's schemes when he was tempted into sin. I find it's interesting if you look at verses 17 and 18 of, of Ephesians 4, that's not without significance that Paul explains that the thinking of unbelievers is darkened. Their thinking is empty. Why? Because they have no functional understanding of the Scriptures. They are alienated from the life of God. They have nothing that is impacting the way that they think and perceive the reality about God's thoughts, God's understanding of what's really important in life. They walk around in spiritual darkness, uninformed, unbiblical in their thinking. And so I would dare say, if you're struggling in a particular sin in your life, first thing I'd suggest you do is be in the Word. Read the Scriptures. Take a break from all the entertainment. Take a break from all the things that are so easily allowing our brain to be turned off and to turn away from those things. Get out in front of you and in your mind the Scriptures. And if there's a particular area of struggle, then go online, Google if you have to, find the verses that will correspond to the issues that pertain to that sin and read them again and again and pray over them and think about them and memorize them and use the Scripture to fight against what you know to be areas that displease Christ in your life. Philippians 4.8, I preached a sermon on that not too long ago. Think on these things, those things that are pure and excellent and praiseworthy. Have whatever your mind is focused on is going to be made evident in how you live, what you choose to do, what you are going after. So that's the first thing I would suggest. Second thing is, I would say it's important to understand we must be ruthless. 
be ruthless with sin. Years ago, my grandparents who lived, I had two, uh, two sets of grandparents, one in, in Virginia and one across the town from where we lived in West Virginia. And so we would often go see our uh, grandparents across the valley there in the town I grew up in. And uh, they normally did quite well in life, had very good health. But there was a p period in their lives where they were not doing well at all. They had been, uh, both of them, laid aside. They lost their strength. They became rather dizzy at times. And they were just feeling quite weak. And so we became concerned. It seemed like it hit both of them. And for a while, we thought it might be the flu. But the more we investigated, the more we found out that it took place during the winter months when the house was all sealed up tight as it could be, that old drafty house, but it was as tight as they could make it. And we found out that some of the pipes that had been built in this house, was it built in what, 1920, 1915, that they originally it was piped for gas lights to come through the walls and then come out into the room as a fixture in the room to provide light. Well, those pipes had not been thoroughly, carefully, fully sealed shut. The house was leaking with gas, a very small amount, but you keep multiplying that, and it's all contained. And we began to realize they were in a house that could have easily exploded. No wonder they weren't feeling well. Now, what would National Grid tell anyone today who has natural gas and they smell gas somewhere in the residence of wherever they are, some building they're in. Do they say, well, be sure to hold a meeting, talk about it. Be sure to think through a plan of what you want to do about it. Gather all the information of who you want to call. No. They would say, get out of that building now. Don't even make a call. Don't even get your cell phone engaged because there might be a spark that would blow the place up. We need to have a similar kind of response toward sin. Sin is corrosive. Sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. And if your heart and my heart becomes deadened by sin, in other words, we let sin become something that is familiar in our lives and something that has now become rather a pattern in our lives, and we're being hardened by it, our conscience is being hardened, we don't deal with it, be careful now because the, war the Scriptures warn us our conscience can be seared if you don't deal with sin in your life. And that's why the Scriptures repeat again and again in Romans chapter 13, 14. I don't know if you have this to write it down or you want to look it up quickly, but I'm telling you this is the verse that really smote Augustine when he was such a living such a wild life. And he was there just hanging out one day and heard somebody sing a little song and it said, he began, read this scripture. And the verse of scripture says this, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't be comfortable and make room for patterns of sin in your life. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes to those who were struggling to remain pure and chaste in a culture that was just as wild and, and as loose as it possibly could be in Corinth. He said, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say stand there and, and consider it and ponder it and, 
and uh, go see how far you can go before it becomes a problem. He says, flee, get out of there. And how many of us are faced with being exposed to certain situations, certain websites, certain movies, certain music videos, different forms of social media, where there is such a strong temptation that is presented right in front of us time after time. And this allowance to have those things continually put in front of us is encouraging us to develop sin patterns in our life. And as one author said, we need to reject the first inclination to sin. That first little tug is when you need to be proactive. John Owen, that great godly Puritan, said, Rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Do not allow it to gain the smallest ground. That's where the battle's being waged, my friend. Once you begin to get comfortable with it, once you sit there and watch it for a while, once you begin to allow that sin to take hold of you, that's when you begin to face more and more danger. Just like, again, the gas. Do you sit there and let yourself breathe it, or do you get out of there? The the father there in Proverbs, speaking to his son, knows that there's a lot of dangers in these areas, learning to be a person who is um, avoiding the dangers of sexual immorality. What does he say? Verse chapter 5 of Proverbs says, Listen to me. Keep away, keep far away from the adulteress, from the strange woman from the immoral woman, if you will, which is a warning to us to stay away from those websites of pornography that give mental fantasies. Stay away from and don't go near her house, the Scripture says. And may I just again say, I read an article just the other day by Denny Burke, uh, who is at Boyce College uh, in Kentucky, he was expressing this the sheer angst of being a Christian father, saying some of us as parents have got to wake up and realize you cannot be giving a smartphone to little kids. There is a whole cesspool of immorality that are at a fingertip that have polluted the minds and the hearts of so much of our generation that are now coming up in this world how they encourage and how they tolerate and promote all forms of deviancy and sexual perversion. And so he says, I encourage parents to develop an anti-smartphone culture in your home. It's not the best thing to have in the world. And if people are looking at you like you're crazy, you won't let your kids have a smartphone, so be it. Save them from that cesspool that so many kids are already exposed to. Now, that leads me clearly to what you know where I'm going to go. Probably some of you are already ahead of me here, but Jesus offers his own warnings, doesn't he? Wow, he was just so direct with this, so powerful in how he spoke his own warnings. Jesus essentially says in Mark chapter 9, I don't know if you can find your way there real quickly, but Mark number chapter 9, Jesus essentially says, out of love, Concern for his disciples. He says, listen, don't dabble in sin. Don't dabble in it. Don't allow sin to be a comfortable guest or border in the house of your life. Don't make them feel comfortable. 
And he taught the response that we're to make to sin. He called it radical amputation. Listen to what he says. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, to have, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus clearly is not calling for literal, physical self-mutilation. Because guess what? You can be blind and still have lustful thoughts. That's not going to cure the problem. What's he saying? Jesus was speaking in figurative language, language that was intended to shock his audience, to wake them up, to listen very carefully that the danger involved here in dabbling in sin. In the strongest manner possible, Jesus insists that we make costly sacrifices to avoid sin. He insists. He's not leaving any room to wiggle here. He is insisting that his disciples are to take radical steps to deal with sin. As one author wrote, what Jesus is saying is we need to burn the bridges that lead us into sin. For you, what is that? What does that look like? For some of us, it means we need to watch a lot less of QVC. If we already have a house full of stuff and you're sitting there going, oh, I've got to have one more. Oh, I've got to have that. Oh, I've got to have that. For others of us, it means that we need to be careful what we're doing with our eyes and what we expose ourselves to, what, to, what we can get our hands on. Uh, one of the things I keep going back to, again, if we're looking at things we shouldn't, is to go back and get Covenant Eyes, which is a software you can put on your phone, you can put on a computer, and it sends to another person a record of where you've been and what you've been looking at. It's excellent. It doesn't prevent you from going anywhere. It just helps you realize you're accountable. You're accountable. For some of us, it means we need to unsubscribe from various entertainment options that are all around us and very much too accessible, cable TV or Internet. What we have here is a reminder that we need to take decisive and firm measures to remove from our lives those things that make it easy for us to engage in sin. Christ followers must rid ourselves of those things that hinder spiritual growth. And so Jesus says, listen, he is expecting resolute commitment to take action, to put off things that are dishonoring to him, things that are destructive to us and our souls, and to put off those things for good. As one author said, sin cannot be partially abandoned. Sin cannot be partially abandoned. Repentance means that there's no halfway option available to us. We either turn away from it or we don't. He 
You say, well, I find it very hard to deal with that. I've been trying to do that for years. Well, that leads me to my next point. Letter D is we need to remain in church fellowship. Remain in church fellowship. The scriptures remind us that biblical fellowship in the local church is vital for mortification of sin. Being under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, hearing the reading of the Word of God, being a part of a fellowship in which we are learning of Christ is very helpful for us in our soul and in our will and our ability to resist sin. To be learning of Christ in His ways, learning of Christ in His holiness, learning of Christ in His godly warnings against the destructive pitfalls of sin, learning of Christ in His sufferings as He lays down Himself on that cross so that we would not suffer the ultimate consequences of our sins helps us see how awful and ugly and terrible the heinousness of sin really is. And all of God's children need the richness of gospel fellowship. Oh, how we need it. Among the members of God's family, we are called together as the God's family to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, in which we're called again to say, if Christ has done all this for us, how can we go on living in sin as if it's no big deal? We're called to newness of life and resurrection as we are united to Christ's resurrection. And we collectively proclaim Jesus' death as our sin substitute in communion. And when we become identified as members of a local church committed to the fellowship of this church, we are bearing witness that we no longer belong to the world. We are a people who have identified as we are the people of God. And we're accountable to that. We are the called out ones joined to Christ. And therefore, we are a hospital, a hospital of holiness. That's what we are as a church. We are offering compassionate care to any and every sinner, yes, in order to help them, to restore them to proper spiritual health and vitality and godly living, to be zealous for good deeds. That is what our ministry is all about here. We are to restore any of our brethren here. And maybe you're one of those people. You say, well, I, I'm stuck. I'm caught in a sin. I'm, I'm in a bad place in my life. My friends, that is what a church is here for. We're here to encourage you. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, anyone who's caught in that kind of trespass, we are to restore that person. Put them back into proper working order to do so in a spirit of gentleness, looking to ourselves lest we too might be tempted. We're not invulnerable. We're to remove the log from our own eye so that we can assist our brother and sister with the speck that is in their eye. Matthew chapter 7. And so I conclude with this thought. Yes, we need each other in this ongoing battle because we need encouragement. We need to know that we're fighting not by ourselves, but with an army that's with us. Josh Harris offers this helpful comment when he says, Lone Rangers are dead Rangers. 
If you're trying to fight the battle on your own, you're going to lose. But we need to practice the one anothering commands. We need to, to invest our time in building bonds of love between our brothers and sisters here. And men, we share in some struggles that we uniquely share as men. And ladies, you would share some of your struggles with other ladies, the unique challenges and issues that you might share. And we confess our sins to each other. We pray for each other. I conclude with Hebrews chapter 13, in which the writer of Hebrews offers this warning. I think it's a warning we all need to take to heart. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. May God help us. Let's pray. I'd like to just take a moment for you to think and ponder what an application of this message may look like in your life. Some of us, from the start, identified an area of our life where we know we need to work on it, to address it, to go to battle against it. And I want you to think, what is your strategy? What is going to be your response in light of the ongoing challenges of fighting against this sin that's beginning to take a hold in your life? Are you willing to get other people to pray for you? Are you willing to be welcoming, counsel? Are you willing to begin to the Word? Are you willing to take drastic steps to prevent this issue from becoming an ongoing pattern? an ongoing temptation. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would meet us at our point of need here. Help us not to do these things just out of duty, Lord, but help us to remember that if we truly are children of God, adopted and dearly loved, and that we belong to you, and you've given us the, all of these blessings of a new identity and a new destiny and, and a new nature, Father, out of a sense of love for you and a sense of wonder of being cleansed and forgiven, help us, we pray, to strongly engage in the battle at hand. Forbid, Lord, that we would be a people who are comfortable in our sin. Shake us up, Lord. Give us a heartbeat that says we want to be holy. We want to be people who are characterized by godliness. We want to be like our Father, like you in heaven. So, Lord, give us holy desires, we pray. Encourage to take whatever steps we need to take. And, Lord, we know it's not just all about putting off things, but help us as we look further into your word in the weeks to come to put on new things and new responses and a new lifestyle. Toward that end, we ask that you would give us your grace and mercy as found in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.